to the 21st episode of the podcast version of the Tar Sands Diploma, read chapter by chapter by the author Keith Halliday. We are now in the home stretch as McGregor and friends eavesdrop and burgle their way closer to the heart of the mystery. We hope you are enjoying the adventure. And now, without further delay, here is Keith with episode 21. The Tar Sands Diplomat, chapter 24 the Brazilian, and other intelligence assets. Lefranc, Violet, Camille, and I met the next day in Violet's office. Over café creme, prepared by her assistant, we reviewed our haul from the mission. I've given the phone and fax numbers to our stagiaire to reverse the numbers on, said Violet, immediately getting to business. She tried to plug my phone into her laptop so we could watch the video, but the cable wouldn't fit. Violet's assistant held my phone under a light and scrutinized it like a museum artifact. I don't know if anyone in the office has a phone this old, she said, taking my phone and setting off in search of the right cable. Sitting in silence with our coffee, we read the telexes we'd photocopied after Glostrom and Lucille had finally left the night before. These tells are of limited immediate value, said Lefranc, putting down his pile. These emails are totally useless drivel, you mean, said Violet. It's not just useless for us, but really, who writes this stuff? Marking it secret and putting it on the C5 system doesn't make it read any smarter. They're not completely useless, I replied. Look at the recipients of these messages. The general can-do Canada ones go to the usual suspects in Ottawa, mostly working-level officers. But there are separate updates on Albertan oil that go higher up the chain of command and have more people in the Privy Council office copied. Violet considered this for a moment. True, she said, but it's not exactly a smoking gun that senior people are interested in oil. Camille, who'd been silent until that point, held up a C-5 document. This one is interesting, she said. It's from Ambassador Glostrom to Ottawa, reporting on a conversation he had with Friddle's friend, Nigel Merton. He seems to have run into him at some event. It says that Nigel considers Canadian concessions on pharmaceutical patents critical. Critical to what? I asked. It doesn't say. We read the document together. As a former ambassador myself, said Lefranc, my hunch is that Glostrom ran into Nigel somewhere, and Nigel said something about patents to him, and Glostrom had no idea what he was talking about, but reported it to Ottawa. Look how it doesn't reference any other messages, and doesn't talk about Glostrom delivering any messages or key points or anything. And we haven't seen a reference to pharmaceutical patents in any of the other traffic. This puzzled me. Do you mean that the patents are irrelevant? No, interjected Violet. Pharma patents are huge to the Europeans. They keep pushing Canada to extend patent protection. It would be a great concession for Ottawa to make, since the cost of it ends up getting paid by insurance companies and the provincial health programs. But if patents are part of the quid pro quo for some deal with the Europeans, they should be mentioned in the other messages. We went through the documents, and then the dates in the diary file to see if there were any gaps. There weren't. There's nothing in here on pharma patents, said Violet, and any emails involving Sleeth from West Kent Energy or any of the other Can Do Canada people are totally vanilla. Are they keeping the good stuff on the classified system and not printing it out? No, I don't think so, replied Lefranc. It looks like Lucille's still printing every outgoing message the old-fashioned way and filing them. Look at the other file. It looks like she even prints the incoming C5 messages and the ambassador marks them up by hand. You know, McGregor, like you do. Violet looked at me with raised eyebrows. I only do that for the meaty ones, I retorted, the ones that require careful thought. I wish we had the password, said Violet. I want to see the sent items. Might not help, replied Lefranc. I'm guessing that Glostrom isn't copied on the interesting stuff. We would need to get Kennedy's and Beto's passwords. 
Violet kicked off her shoes, put her feet up on an open drawer, and leaned back in her chair. She twirled a finger in her hair, thoughtfully, and looked at the ceiling. And accessing Beto's account probably wouldn't do us any good anyway. I bet they're using Gmail. Is that secure, I asked, recalling how Camille and I had watched Culloden using his laptop in an internet cafe. Violet thought about this for a minute. They're probably more worried about people inside the department, access to information requests, subpoenas, and that kind of thing, she said. A deniable Gmail account with a fake name would be perfect for communicating on sensitive topics with Ottawa and Sleeth and the Westcan guys. They probably have several accounts each to keep it compartmentalized. That way, even if someone you're communicating with knows one of your email addresses, they won't be able to do traffic analysis to see who else you're communicating with. How are we supposed to penetrate Gmail accounts, I asked. Violet went on at length, telling us about things like planting malicious software on Beto's computer that would log his keystrokes and installing mini-cameras to capture him typing his password. She said it would depend if they were using cheap and untraceable personal laptops or department machines. I was impressed. Your firm can do all of that, I asked. No, of course not, said Violet. Russian hackers can do that, and I don't want to overestimate the department, but their laptops are probably pretty well protected. Could we just steal one, asked Lefranc. I knew a woman in Moscow who carried her laptop in her backpack on her scooter. Her competitors arranged a fender bender just to grab her bag. That would alert them, said Violet. And who knows what hard drive encryption they're using. High risk, low chance of success. We were stumped. At that moment, Violet's door opened and her assistant reappeared with my phone and a cable. Violet connected it to her computer and we huddled around the screen. The first few seconds of video appeared to be my hand holding the phone, then some footage of my shoe. The video was surprisingly good, probably because of the streetlights shining into the ambassador's office. Finally, the phone moved up the side of the desk, and the screen filled with a pasty white expanse. Is that, is that a super close-up of Lucille's thigh? asked Violet. Lucille's moaning was audible, as was something garbled from Glostrom. Good sound quality, though, she said. The camera moved sharply again. This was when Violet had signaled me to get closer. We saw the ceiling, the shirt on the bust of Terry Fox, and then the camera turned back to Lucille. Violet hit pause and squinted at the screen. McGregor, how is that angle even possible? She moved the video forward a few more seconds. Jesus, she's got a Brazilian! Violet turned to us, appalled and amazed. Don't you see it? She's shaved, down there! We leaned forward. It was indeed remarkable. And what is that blotch? asked Lefranc. A tattoo? I think it's the logo of the junior hockey team she used to work for. Back in Gatineau, I said. Under the bikini, classy, noted Violet dryly, before clicking play again. The video continued a few more seconds until His Excellency appeared at the top of the screen, headed for the Brazilian. That's enough, cried Violet, pausing the video. It's a keeper. She saved the file onto her server and gave me a copy on a password-protected memory stick. This would permit us to exert a certain amount of pressure on Glostrum, I noted. Blackmail him, you mean, replied Violet but we established five minutes ago that he doesn't know anything. We were stumped again. Violet's assistant reappeared with fresh coffee and a dossier. They'd already found the owners of three-quarters of the numbers on our lists. How did you do that so quickly? exclaimed Lefranc. Violet's assistant smiled. The internet. We flipped through the list. The phone calls were mostly to Ottawa numbers, usually ones with prefixes the department used. The Brussels calls went predominantly to various commission numbers, usually at directorates involved in Can Do Canada. There were calls to places like Chakali de Decker, proud provider of duty-free liquor to the diplomatic community. There were also numbers with the Belgian country code but strange city codes. These were probably mobile phones. 
One number in particular had been called from Kennedy's phone several times per day. Violet asked her assistant about it, but the latter said the number didn't answer and didn't show up in any directories. We flipped to page two and froze. There was a call to the Green Alliance from the mission boardroom, and it had been made the day before the press conference debacle and riot at the official residence. Who would call the Green Alliance? LeFranc asked. From the boardroom. Everyone has access to the boardroom, but Beto and Ravinsky often used it as their private office, I pointed out. Maybe Beto was phoning to threaten them before the visit. You know his style. Something like telling them that if they protested Can-Do Canada, he would have a hundred baby seals executed back home. Doesn't seem to have worked, said Violet. Maybe it was Ravinsky. His boss absolutely loathed Glostrom back when he was still in cabinet. Maybe making Glostrom look bad was too big an opportunity to resist. Violet highlighted the call, and we moved on to the faxes. Violet's team had identified all the fax numbers. The only interesting one was on the Embassy to Belgium's printout. They clearly had a speed dial set for the Brussels and Canadian media. Several times we saw two or three page faxes, probably press releases, go out to a list that included the papers in Brussels, as well as the ones in Victoria, Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton, and so on across the country. What was interesting was that in between Ottawa and Montreal, presumably where the Ottawa paper was supposed to be, the list said simply, Mr. Mole. An abbreviation, asked Violet. A nickname, asked LeFranc. I suddenly remembered a white truck I'd often seen around Rideau Hall and official residences in Ottawa, one with a mole wearing a baseball cap on the side. An exterminator, I exclaimed. Violet's assistant soon confirmed that the Ottawa paper's fax number was just one digit different from Mr. Mole's. It was absurd. Mr. Mole had been receiving press releases from the embassy to Belgium, possibly since the invention of the speed dial button. There was the bigger question of why the embassy to Belgium was sending its press releases to newspapers in Canada, and why they were still doing it by fax. Perhaps no newspaper had ever published one, so media division at headquarters had never learned what the embassy was doing. I imagined the secretary at Mr. Mole crumpling the monthly newsletter on Belgo-Canadian relations and tossing it into the recycling. Then I saw a fax to the newspapers and Mr. Mole dated the day before the leak was published. We've got to visit Mr. Mole and see if they still have the leak. In the trash, I said. The problem was finding someone in Ottawa to visit Mr. Mole. We couldn't ask anyone at the department. There'd be too many questions. Violet's friends in various ministers' offices were also off-limits. Don't you have any friends outside the department? asked Violet. This was an awkward question. Elizabeth had asked it more than once, usually after I had enjoyed myself a bit too much debating politics or foreign policy with other guests at a dinner party. Lefranc said he did, but then couldn't think of any. Neither could I. Then I had an idea. Get your daughter to do it, I said to Lefranc. She's a spook. She'll scare Mr. Mole. She scares me. She thinks I met my other daughters in Toronto, Lefranc objected. I call her every day or two and complain about how many screaming children were at the Royal Ontario Museum. And anyway, what would having the facts prove? No one is going to be moronic enough to write their name on a copy they leak. We shelved the idea. That left just one item from the mission, the sticky note on Lucille's computer that said, Dinner, 6 p.m., private room, Rendafrique, Thursday, 8 p.m., reservation under Tim Horton, with the initials of Horinsky, Beto, and Kennedy scrawled on the side. We debated several questions. Why did it seem to say dinner for six, but only have three names? Could there actually be someone named Tim Horton having dinner with Beto, Hervinsky, and Kennedy? And why a private room? And why was the reservation under a cover name, if that's what Tim Horton really was? Lefranc was particularly annoyed about the cover name. Sure, he said, security says don't use your own name in Addis Ababa, but in Brussels, 
and picking Tim Horton is as obvious as that time they made the drivers call the ambassador's car Beaver One. I'm guessing it's Sleeth and the Alberta oil guys, said Violet. If we want to find out what's really going on, this is our chance. She turned to me. McGregor, we need to be inside La Renda Afrique, with that room, wired for sound. For a split second, my facial expression and body language assumed that typical departmental posture. It can't be done, and even if it could, it's not my responsibility. I was about to say, is that really necessary? When I suddenly remembered Julian's double X file, I must have forgotten it during the mental trauma I endured under Glostrom's desk. I reached into my bag and pulled it out. I showed Violet and LeFranc the copy of the telex that had been leaked. I pointed out that Julian had underlined several sentences. LeFranc scrutinized the staple. Hard to tell. If the papers crumpled, it might have been taken apart and faxed and then restapled. Now I think I will call my daughter. I'd give a bottle of Macallan to know if the fax that Flitch and Mr. Mole received had these same bits underlined. Violet scrutinized the handwritten notes. Why was he keeping this file? Could he have been documenting all this PMO skullduggery about the oil sands in Kandu, Canada? And if so, why? Maybe, I said. Maybe he thought it was wrong to throw the rest of Kandu, Canada under the bus. Maybe he was going to blow the whole thing, you know, leak it all and expose the PMO's backroom deal to help the oil sands. Jesus, exclaimed Violet. Big oil would kill you if you did that. The PMO, too. We all sat there in a stunned silence. That was just a figure of speech, said Violet. Was it? asked Lefranc. There were billions of dollars at stake. Tens of billions. A top oil man might have millions in stock options. Think of what the share price of Westcan will do if the headline is Westcan Scandal instead of Oil Exports to Europe Approved. That wraps up episode 21 of the Tar Sands Diplomat. Thanks for listening. Please give us a review on iTunes or Amazon.ca if you haven't already. And if you have any comments or questions, contact me by email at khalliday at tarsandsdiplomat.com. And join us next week for the next installation of McGregor's Adventures, available on iTunes, Stitcher, and all your favorite podcasting outlets.